0: And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So h- how many of you have ever had to show somebody tough love before? You ever had to show somebody tough love? Maybe even as a kid, you didn't give in to a child's tantrum. You just let them kick and scream until their kickers were done kicking and their screamer was done broke. You know, maybe that. You just didn't give in. You didn't give them the lollipop. You didn't give them the toy at the store, whatever it was, kind of tough love. Uh, Or maybe even on a more serious note, maybe had someone in your life who was kind of toxic and so you didn't engage in that relationship for a while. You had to say, you know what? I know you really, this means a lot to you. Or sometimes this is like the hook that you need to get your drama fixed for the day or for the week. I'm not doing that. We're not engaging in that. Or maybe you've even had to, you know, keep someone from destroying themselves by not enabling certain behaviors in their lives. So maybe we've had to show tough love. Or maybe you've had to just be brutally honest with someone before. You, just had to, you, you, you were trying to beat around the bush. You were trying to avoid saying a certain thing to them that you knew they needed to hear. But if I say it in, my, in an indirect way, maybe they'll still get the message and I don't have to be so mean to them. But eventually it just didn't work. They just didn't get the message, they didn't get the memo, they didn't catch on to the program, they didn't understand what you were trying to say, and so you finally just had to say, hey look, and you fill in the blank, we, we gotta have this conversation. And so this series We Need to Talk is sort of what that is, with God speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel about some of their issues, some of their hang-ups, some of their problems, and we will see that specifically today as we're looking at the prophet Hosea. Hosea is an interesting prophet. You may or may not know a lot about him, uh, but we'll talk about something that is very unique to him and him alone today, and we'll see what Hosea says, what God says to Israel through Hosea, and for the first part here, it's pretty harsh toward them. It's it's not really good news for them, but the theme of the book of Hosea that we'll look at today, we're going to look at the main idea, and we'll kind of scan throughout, is Warren, you know the theme. It's the motto of the Marines, Semper Fi, Semper Fidelis, that's right. That's the theme of Hosea. So Semper Fidelis is simply a Latin term that means always faithful. So the theme of Hosea is faithfulness. That's the theme that we will look at today, faithfulness. So in in the time of Hosea, the king of Israel really for years and really generations has been pretty unfaithful toward God. And we'll see why God really doesn't like that a whole lot here in just a minute. But what God does that is unique to this prophet Hosea in the Old Testament is he uses Hosea's personal life, really his love life, his marriage, as a way to show Israel what he thinks about how they've been unfaithful to him. So let's start out at Hosea chapter 1, verse 2 and see what God does here, what he asks Hosea to do that is amazing. It's incredible. It is one of a kind. Here's what it says, Hosea 1, 2. When the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, He said to him, Go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. Wow. I mean, first of all, harsh, but fair, but true. And second of all, when you're Hosea, you're like, Really, God? Is there no other way you could make this metaphor obvious to the people like, you really want me to marry a prostitute? And God's like, yes, I literally mean to do that. I'm going to use you as a symbol, as a living metaphor of how I feel about Israel. And and we'll come back to this in a minute. By the way, anybody know Hosea's wife's name? Gomer. Well, golly, Andy, you know. I just had to get that in there. I can't... Gomer's in the Bible one time. I cannot pass that up, you know. Well, shucks, Andy. That's kind of weird, you know. Okay. We are all showing off our age possibly right now if we got that reference. No. Okay, anyway. So uh, here's the thing. We've seen this theme throughout our study in the Bible so far this year a few times. We're coming back to it hardcore today. So God sees his relationship with the nation of Israel as a marriage. He has entered into a covenant with them, just like you would take a vow. or You did at your wedding. You took a vow. You promised to be faithful to that person. God saw this connection, this covenant, as a unique relationship with this nation. And so he enters into this saying, hey, I will be everything you need and more. I will never leave you nor forsake you. God says multiple times in Deuteronomy and in Joshua. He promises, I will be always there for you. He will be simplified to them. But the problem is time after time after time, Israel does not keep their end of that bargain. They fail God over and over. And he sees this as infidelity, as prostitution, as he says, unfaithfulness. Now, we'll look at a couple verses here throughout and look at, there's a couple different I don't know if you want to call it levels or layers or categories of unfaithfulness that we see here throughout Hosea, and then we'll use a different biblical example to see how we can fall into one of these two categories as well, okay? So let's look at a couple scriptures here. Hosea chapter 4, we skip down a little bit, and this gets to really the first type of unfaithfulness that we see here. So Hosea 4 verse 1, Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. The Lord has brought charges against you, saying, There is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. You make vows and break them. You kill and steal and commit adultery. There is violence everywhere, one murder after another. Then skip down to Hosea Chapter seven verses 8 and 9, we'll see a second type of unfaithfulness or a second category that we'll unpack in a second. So Hosea 7, 8 and 9, again, God speaking through Hosea, the people of Israel mingle with godless foreigners, making themselves as worthless as half-baked cake. Worshiping foreign gods has sapped their strength, but they don't even know it. Their hair is gray, but they don't realize they're old and weak. So there are a couple of other synonyms for faithfulness that let's talk about just for a second to kind of get a very well-rounded view of what God, I think, feels, what he's trying to communicate. One of them, he's already kind of said, fidelity is a synonym for faithfulness. This is typically in more of a relationship type of setting. Fidelity to your spouse, I'm a one-woman man, I'm a one-man woman, that sort of thing. Fidelity, it deals really with truth in, in essence sort of at its core. You think of the word infidel, which is not common, but you hear it in religious circles. An infidel is someone who does not believe the truth of a certain religion. They are ignoring the tenets of the faith. So they're, an in, they're being an infidel in that way. It's a lack of fidelity to this certain tenet of faith. Another synonym for faithfulness would also be integrity. Now, things have integrity, right? So a chair, you would say, if, if I feel that this chair has integrity, I will sit on it because I think it'll hold me up. If I'm looking at it and it's like looking a little wobbly, a little weak, I'm going to say that lacks integrity, so I'm not going to take my chances on breaking my tailbone today, thank you very much, Okay. So integrity also is an idea of being consistent, especially when it comes to character, being the same inside and out. So this is what we look for in a person of integrity. It's what we strive to be as people of integrity. Uh, And it's not easy to do that, is it? It's not easy to maintain this standard. Is it to always be truthful in all that we do, to always be consistent in all that we are, to be the same inside and out in all times? It's not easy to maintain that standard. And that's where these two categories that I talked about kind of come into play, where these two uh, types of unfaithfulness sort of rear their ugly head, even as we saw in Hosea 4 and then the other one in Hosea 7. So again, go back to Hosea 4 with me for a second. God says, you make vows and break them. You kill, steal, commit adultery. There's violence and murder everywhere. So this is more intentional unfaithfulness. They're making a vow and then saying, I don't care what I said I would do, I'm not gonna do that. I don't care what promise I made, I'm gonna break that. For whatever reason, at whatever level, that's what we see here. It's, it's sort of diabolical in a way. It's sort of, there's some planning involved here. There's a time lapse here that goes on. It's intentionally setting out really to harm others or to break some goals or uh, promises that we made. But then we see in the second passage that we looked at, Hosea 7, sort of a second way of viewing unfaithfulness here. And it's almost what I would say, unintentional unfaithfulness in a way. So he says here, you're like a half-baked cake. So it's sort of like, you know, I tried, but I still acted out of character. Like I was pushed to my limit, I couldn't take it anymore, and I snapped, that sort of thing. That's what he's saying. There was an effort made, you kind of tried, but you didn't quite commit all the way. He even says here that your strength is set, but you don't even know it. That you're old and gray and weak, but don't even realize it. It's almost unintentional. It's sort of like when you maybe dabble a little too long in the wrong sort of thing and it kind of trips you up. You're not intentionally setting out to, I'm gonna just break this command of God. I'm gonna do this thing. It just sort of comes at you unexpectedly. Or maybe you are around the wrong kind of crowd for too long and they have more of an influence on you over time than you do on them. It's not that you're setting out to do some sort of evil, diabolical thing. It's that it sort of happens. Or suddenly you make an error in judgment, you know, a a pressure situation that really just freaks you out and you just do the wrong thing or act out of character. We see sort of a difference in these two ways of faithfulness. And we see this also in the life of Jesus with his disciples. So last week was Easter, and then the week leading up to that being Holy Week. We're going to kind of put ourselves back in that week, on, really on Thursday night. So we're going to look at for here just for a minute both Judas and Peter, who were both unfaithful to Jesus on the same night, within hours of each other. Now, we know, we already know, so I'm just going to tell you what they did, then we'll talk about it. We know that Judas actually betrayed Jesus, didn't he? He actually took money to hand him over to the people that would then murder him the next day. And then just a couple hours later, Peter denies even knowing who Jesus is, like one of his closest inner circle guys. I will, you know, I'm your ride and die, Jesus. And then when push came to shove, he didn't follow through. We see both of these type of uh, characteristics and both of these uh, labels, no pun intended here, uh, on both Judas and Peter. So let's look at them just for a minute here in, in more detail. So let's look at Judas first. Matthew 26, verses 14 through 16, it says this. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priest and asked, How much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him thirty pieces of silver. From that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. There's intent here with Judas. There's a plan here. There's forethought going into being unfaithful. To Jesus, It didn't just spring up on him. It actually came from him. It was probably his idea. He heard rumblings. And he thought, yeah, it's a good idea. He probably had reasons why he did this. He probably had justification for why he was so unfaithful to Jesus. The problem is his reasons were bad reasons. They were faulty reasons. His justification was weak justification, and that led him then to a terrible outcome. It led him to betraying his Lord. It led him to being unfaithful to Jesus. Now let's look at Peter again. So Judas then comes after he agrees. He tells the the priest where he's going to be. You can find him here. He'll be alone and vulnerable. You can arrest him in the middle of the night. There won't be a big crowd around to cause a scene. And so Judas leads the people into the garden. He signifies who Jesus is by kissing him so that they know this is the guy we're after. And then he is arrested and led away. He goes before the high priest and some Jewish officials basically on trial for his life, and it says Peter follows kind of far off. He's trying to keep tabs on what's going on, doesn't want to get caught in the middle of all of this, and so he's out, they're inside the house here, and Peter's outside with this large crowd, basically trying to keep within earshot of what's going on, trying to figure out if he can know what what the ticker at the bottom of the screen says, what's the headline, what's the update, and someone suddenly notices him, or they think they notice him. Hey, uh, you're one of his guy. you're one of Jesus' guys, aren't you? And Peter says, no, 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 you got me confused with somebody else. Denial number one. And then later, somebody else says, no, no, you, you're, you're actually Peter, aren't you? You're one of his closest guys. I've seen you with this guy. for, And he's like, no, 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 it's not me. I'm not with him. He's not my guy. Denial number two. And then the third time, somebody says, no, you're definitely Peter. You're one of his disciples. And so, again, out of sort of fear here, he says, I don't even know who this Jesus is. Like, I'm not one of his followers. I don't even know who this guy is, let alone am I associated with him. And Jesus predicted that this would happen, but do you, see that, do you see that there's a difference, a bit of a difference here between Judas and Peter? Now, the result's the same. They both were unfaithful to Jesus. In his greatest moment of need, they both did the opposite of what they should have done if they really loved him as they claimed that they did. But again, Judas is intentional. It's a plan. He's looking for the right moment, the right time to be unfaithful, whereas Peter is just under immense pressure in this moment. He's kind of come against what these people and they don't know, and, you know, they think they know him and he's trying to figure out, okay, what do I do? What do I do? Fear overtakes him. He cracks. He snaps. He makes a mistake or several mistakes and it is the same. It's unfaithfulness, but it's a bit of a different uh, sort of way here. Now, sometimes in our lives, sometimes We can be like Judas. Now, I don't mean that we're, you know, selling off our Lord, right? But I'm saying sometimes we can lack fidelity over time. So someone does you dirty, and then you make it your mission to get them back. You think about it, you plan it, you dream about it, and then you pull off the ultimate get-even plan, right? That's Judas, it's not this thing that happens all of a sudden, it's a knee-jerk reaction, oh, I freaked out, or oh, I made a mistake. It's like, no, you planned this. You knew this was going to happen. Or sometimes you tell a non-truth, and instead of coming clean and making things right, you have to tell another non-truth to cover that one up. Or you got to keep twisting the story around to make it fit. Instead of just saying, you know what, Yeah, I wasn't completely forthright in that, I I lied. We say, well, now i got to make sure I keep my story straight, keep my lie consistent, make sure that I told them and them the same lie so that it doesn't come back to bite me. That's more like Judas. We intend on misleading people in the end. Even if it's not maybe always our intention, we have opportunity after opportunity to make it right. But over time, we just keep the lie perpetrating. Sometimes we can be like Judas, sometimes. But more often, we're like Peter. Much more I'd say 98 out of 100 times we're like Peter, okay, So in a moment of sudden, intense temptation, we go against our better judgment and make a compromise. It's not something that we've been thinking about or, you know, dreaming about or dreading. It's like it just happens, it comes in our face, and we just give in to that temptation and do what we would not otherwise do. Sometimes in a pressure situation, we just crack and act out of character. Like when you just freak out on somebody out of anger, sometimes that just comes out in a moment. It's not this thing that's, that you, I'm going to get them, I'm going to yell at them, I'm going to get, sometimes we do, for we're like Judas, but sometimes when we're like Peter, it just kind of comes, and we just snap, and we've had too many people say too many things at work today, and so then they get it, right? Sometimes that happens, we're like Peter in that, it happens. Sometimes out of, in a group, out of fear of awkwardness, or out of fear of rejection, we may act in a certain circle like we would never act in a different circle, That lacks integrity. It's not, we're not consistent in that. It's different in different circles. So that's not the kind of life that I think we want to lead. If we're honest, we say, no, I want to be like either one of these guys. Like I don't want to do that. So that's the problem, though, is sometimes we do that. We have good intentions most of the time. We try really hard to do the right thing most of the time. Yet sometimes, despite our best efforts our strongest effort you know we still give in and we still lack faithfulness in some areas we've all been there so that's where israel found themselves in hosea that's really the the bad news that's the bad part of this uh, prophecy from hosea but there is good news that we will now talk about thank the lord right here's the good news when god looks at this relationship between israel and himself so far he's focused on their unfaithfulness However, the good news is there's a second half to this relationship, isn't there? There's another party involved. And luckily, God describes himself in this way, and he says, hey, I don't don't do what you do. I am always semper fidelis. I'm always doing this. And how he does this first is, once again, he uses Hosea's uh, marriage, to illustrate this idea of his faithfulness to his people. So let's go to Hosea chapter three, verse one, and here's what God says about his end of the bargain with Israel. Hosea three, one. Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. So the bad news for Israel is they were not always faithful, but God always is. And what's amazing is that he says, even while they are unfaithful to me, I remain faithful to them. It's not like a tit for tat here. It's not like a, well, you did this, so now I'm going to go find another people. That's not what God does. He's like, ah, oh, you messed up too many times. I'm gonna throw you out on the street, on the curb where you belong. He doesn't do that. He says, not just despite your unfaithfulness, but in your unfaithfulness, I remain faithful to you. God is semper fidelis. And then we see here throughout uh, Hosea, let's read a couple more scriptures here, or one more at first. Hosea chapter 11, verse eight. Um, here's what it says. He, God says this to Israel. He says, oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? And let me just stop it there for a second and just, there's a, actually, there's a, a, a video, a short video clip that I think might be helpful for us to kind of flesh this out. So just check this out with me for just a second. Never gonna give you up, never gonna let you down, never gonna run around and desert you. Never gonna make you cry, never gonna say goodbye, never gonna tell a lie and hurt you. So by the way, that's Hosea 11.8. You will never think of that scripture the same way ever again. That's the idea. So let's, let's actually, let's read it. There's a couple more verses here. Let's read it. Hosea 11:8 8 through 11. Oh, how can I give you up? See, it's already in your head right now. You're thinking about that video, right? That song right now. Oh, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Adma or, des- or demolish you like Zeboim? My heart is torn within me. My compassion overflows. No, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel, for I am God and not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you, and I will not come to destroy. For someday the people will follow me. I, the Lord, will roar like a lion, and when I roar, my people will return, trembling from the west. Like a flock of birds, they will come from Egypt, trembling like doves. They will return from Assyria, and I will bring them home again, says the Lord. Isn't God's forgiveness great? Isn't, I mean, it just is. And and the patience of God that is shown here. He says, they will return to me, He's holding out hope. Eventually, they'll figure things out. They'll come to their senses and they'll come back to me. He's showing patience. He said, "I'm not going to destroy you. I'm not going to, you know, like make you a crater in the earth." Because eventually, it may not be this generation. Maybe your kids or your kids, or your kid. Eventually, you'll come back. So he's waiting. His patience is fantastic. And isn't God's grace amazing? It'd be a good song, wouldn't it? Amazing grace. Hmm. I'll have to think about that. I'll, I'll think about that one this week. What's interesting, though, is that a couple hundred years or so before Hosea speaks this on behalf of God, King David actually writes a very similar thing about God. It's in Psalm 103. Let's read these verses together. Psalm 103, starting at verse 8. Here's what King David, again, a couple hundred years or so before Hosea, this is what David says. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve, for his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. And this coming from a guy who knew what it was like to be unfaithful a time or two in his life. This comes from a man who knew what God's forgiveness was, what his mercy was, what his patience was. One thing that's interesting about Psalm 103 is David writes like a father to his children. So, so far in Hosea, we've talked about the marriage relationship that God sees here. But later on in Hosea, the the last little bit here, it switches then to a father and a child relationship. We see both of these in Hosea. So it's interesting here that he switches and he uses this relationship. And basically what God says is, he says, I gave you everything. I gave you your identity, I freed you from slavery in Egypt, I led you to the promised land and let you conquer it, and you still aren't faithful to me. So there's a little bit of this, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of this world thing with God going on here with Israel. There's a little bit of that with God in Hosea, but it makes me think really of the prodigal son story that Jesus tells right? The father has two sons. The youngest son says, hey, dad, I'm getting out of this crummy town. Give me what's mine so I can go do my thing. And his dad reluctantly says, okay, you don't want to do this, but I'm going to let you do it anyway. He gives him the freedom to make his own choices like a father sometimes does against his better judgment. So the son goes out, as we know, and he spends everything on on everything you can imagine he lives his his way and gets bad results he decides to come back home and he says maybe my dad will hire me as a hired servant maybe i can even work as a a non-paid slave i can just get back home i'll figure it out but what does he find when he gets back home he doesn't find a father who's cross with him He doesn't find a father who's cold toward him. He doesn't find, you know, a servant come out and send him a rejection notice. Nope, you left, you can't come back. What he finds is his father rushes out to meet him and embrace him and welcome him back to the family with a ring and a robe and throws him a huge party. You know, sometimes God gets a really bad rap, especially Old Testament God, right? Right? We think, oh, Old Testament God's a God of wrath, a God of judgment, you know, a God of fire and brimstone, and New Testament God is, you know, rainbows and unicorns. <laughs> it's like, no, it's like 0 AD didn't suddenly shift God's perspective on the universe. It didn't even really open us up to this brand new God. He was always there. Hosea shows us that. God says, you deserve punishment, but I'm going to withhold it from you. You have been unfaithful time after time after time yet I will consistently remain faithful to you. God, the God of grace has always been there. The God of mercy has always been there. The God of love has always been there. Even another passage like Psalm 103 shows us the truth of that. God's always been a big softy when it comes to his kids. That's what we see. And here's the question. How loving and forgiving is God? How far does that go? What's the limit to this? Here's what Paul says in Romans 5, verse 8. Paul says, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So, Jesus didn't come to die for good people, he came to die for the worst of sinners. Jesus even said, I didn't come for the healthy, I came for the sick. I didn't come for the person that has everything figured out in their life together. I came for the broken. I came for the needy. I came for those who couldn't get their act together. That's who I came for. That's how far Christ's love and, by extension, the Father's love goes. Going back to Peter and and Judas for a second, you know, Jesus died for Peter, right? Even though a few hours before, Peter denied even knowing him. Denied any association, any knowledge of him on the cross. Jesus died for Peter's unfaithfulness. Can I go one step further? Do you know that Jesus died for Judas on the cross? The one that literally handed him over to his murderers. Jesus died for him. Jesus died for you. He died for your sin. He died for my sin. Not when we were at our best, but when we were at our worst. Not when we're faithful and doing fine, me and Jesus, we're tight and we're, we're best bros and think, you know, it's, praise God. No, it's like when we're in the gutter, when we're cursing God, when we're questioning everything in the universe, that's what Jesus came for. That's who he came for. The people who rejected him because we all have, the people who despised him because we all have, the people that want nothing to do with him, Jesus died for them. That's how far the Father's love goes. And that is incredible. There's one more issue that we need to cover just here for a couple minutes, and that's, and that's this issue. Now, again, like I said, most of the time, we're much more like Peter, okay? We don't have this diabolical plan to overthrow the kingdom of God. We're, that's not our mindset most of the time. We're not scheming and plotting how I can go against the rules of the Bible. We're not doing that. Most of the time, we're just caught in a, in a weird situation or we're tripped up in a moment of weakness and we become unfaithful through an act or a moment or a decision or some words or whatever. That happens, okay? And I'm glad that God is faithful. I'm glad that God forgives, but here's the issue we need to cover. Wouldn't you say, I would rather have to have God forgive me less and me just be faithful more often? Wouldn't that be a better goal? Say, I want to see how close I can get to the line of destruction and see how much God really loves me. Now, I'd rather just... how how close can I stay to God's heart consistently and not have to have him bail me out all the time? I'd rather live that way, right? I think most of us would say, yes, I'd rather live that way than the alternative. But the question is, how do we do that? Is that even possible? What's the answer? What's the solution to that? It's actually found in Hosea. So Hosea, one more scripture in Hosea. Hosea 14, verse four. Here's what God says. Hosea 14.4, the Lord says, then I will heal you of your faithlessness. My love will know no bounds for my anger will be gone forever. That key phrase I want to focus on for a minute here is God says, I will heal you of your faithlessness. Now there's two ways I want to look at that here just for a minute. So first, I think one thing that God does is that he heals us from uh, basically the response of our faithlessness. Because especially those of us that have that desire to live close to God and to please him and honor him and and live within his love in a healthy way, when we do do become unfaithful, we deal with a lot of guilt with that, I think. We deal with a lot of regret from those things that, I wish I would have done that different. Man, I never should have said that. Oh, I feel like trash. I feel awful. I feel, you know, it's terrible. We deal with those emotions. God, I think, offers healing and forgiveness from that. He heals us from those emotions of our unfaithfulness. Think about, again, with with Peter. One more time. So Peter denies Jesus. Then Jesus rises from the dead. And then a few weeks later, this is in the last chapter of the book of John, Jesus takes Peter aside and he has a one-on-one with Peter. And he asks him a simple question. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, well, yeah. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then, again, the next question Jesus asks him is the same question he just asked him. Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, of course, Jesus, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. And then guess what? How many times did Peter deny Jesus? So then a third time, Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, he's kind of getting a little perturbed. Jesus, I mean, yes, you know I love you. This is a ridiculous conversation. You know I love you. You know, of course. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. I think what Jesus is doing here is he's doing what Hosea says God will do. He heals you of your faithlessness. Because it says that when Peter had denied Jesus three times, just as Jesus had predicted earlier that night, he he runs away, he's weeping, he's crying, he's full of fear, he's full of, he's a failure he's let jesus down he was the guy right he was one of the inner dudes he you know he should when people said are you peter he said said, you bet i am and he didn't i mean how how is he going to feel but now just a few weeks later jesus heals him of his faithlessness he forgives him of that and says you got to move on from this and i encourage you to do the same thing now, there is repentance that come, and there is sorrow that comes with repentance, yes, but once that has been dealt with, once God has then cleansed us of our sin and our unrighteousness, you've got to get out of that. You can't live in that condemnation all the rest of your days. You can't have this running list of everything I've ever done wrong or said wrong or every time I've disappointed God or let Him down. We, we can't live like that. That's no way to live. That's not what God wants for us. He wants to heal us of our faithlessness. And unfortunately, in the case of Judas, he wasn't able to experience that like Peter was because he took his own life. So now I'm not going to make any assumptions on his eternal state, but I will say he, he could have. Don't you think that Jesus could have had a one-on-one with Judas? Like talk with Peter, make sure he's right. Hey, Judas, come on over here. Hey, what you did was really wrong, man. That was awful. Do you know what you did? right? But do you love me? Right? He could have had that same moment of healing with Jesus, but he, he let his despair get the best of him. He let the condemnation overtake him, and it led him to his own demise. So here's, here's the other thing, though. The other part of being healed from our faithlessness. Again, if we truly have hearts that desire to be more faithful and to show our fidelity and to have more integrity, God, I believe, here also offers healing, literal healing of our faithlessness, and by that I mean God offers power to overcome the pressure that we face in which we give in and become unfaithful. God offers strength to overcome temptations when we are weak. God offers freedom from fear that may cause us to stumble and not be faithful. What do I mean by that? One more scripture as we close and it's Paul again, Galatians 5:22 and 23. It says this, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. So the answer to our faithlessness is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I love the way that this version words it. Usually, the way I memorized it in King James, the fruit of the Spirit is loved all the way through. Now that's true, and it's fine it's worded that way, but sometimes when we read it in that way, we can think, well, if I'm not showing fruit, maybe I'm not really saved. Or we look at somebody else, they're not showing fruit, so maybe they're not saved. That's the real danger of this passage, right? I look at other people, they're not showing enough fruit to my liking, so guess what, I've already judged them. That's that's a problem. We can become discouraged if we fear that we're lacking fruit. But again, look at how this is worded here. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit. The point of the Holy Spirit is that we do often lack fruit. We often are unfaithful, so the Holy Spirit comes in to strengthen us in our weakness. The Holy Spirit provides wisdom when we are clueless on what the right next step is to make. The Holy Spirit gives us power to overcome temptation, maybe a little bit better the next time when we failed the time before. The gift and the promise of the Holy Spirit is the healing of our own faithlessness. As we seek the help of the Holy Spirit, he provides all that we need. Now, this is not instant. Again, it is fruit. It is produced. It is over time. It is a process, and that can be so frustrating sometimes. Because again, we, I think most of us have a heart, I want to do better. I want to you know, grow in these fruit, and I want to be more faithful. We have that heart, and so when we fail, we're like, oh man, did it again. Guess what? The Holy Spirit is still there to pick you up, dust you off, and say, let's go at that again. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. He produces this kind of fruit. It's a work of the Spirit. And so as we continue to lean into the Holy Spirit, he does that amazing work. You see, our desire to be faithful is not enough. Even our effort is not enough. But if we have the desire and make the effort and then add to that the power of the Holy Spirit, we can then be more faithful more often. We can produce that kind of fruit through the Holy Spirit. I can't produce it by myself. It's a production of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the, not a fruit of Stephen, fruit of the Spirit, including faithfulness. And God's faithful even in that work, too. Aren't you glad that God's faithful? Aren't you glad that He doesn't give up on you? Aren't you glad that in our sin He doesn't crush you? Right? Isn't that good news? It's good news that He doesn't treat us. He says in Hosea, I'm not a mere mortal. I don't treat you the way that you sometimes treat me. Even in your unfaithfulness, God is faithful. Even in my unfaithfulness, God is faithful. And then on top of that, he helps us and encourages us and empowers us to then be more faithful. So he covers the mistakes. He forgives the mistakes. And then he says, hey, let's grow in this. Let's get better at this. Let's be empowered to be more faithful. He covers both ends of the spectrum in all of our lives. God does this. I am so thankful that even when I am Unfaithful God is always faithful. He is truly semper fidelis. Let's pray. God, today we do thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your integrity. We thank you for your consistency. And we thank you that when we don't measure up, you offer forgiveness, you offer grace. It's amazing. And we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who produces these fruit in us, including faithfulness. So that when we are maybe brought up in a similar circumstance that we failed in before, your Holy Spirit can then maybe empower us and encourage us and strengthen us to withstand maybe this temptation that we gave into last time. Maybe when when we're about to fly off on the handle and make a Peter mistake here, you you can say, no, 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 Just, just don't do anything. Just don't do anything sometimes the holy spirit will come in and save us from ourselves he will produce this fruit of faithfulness god thank you that daily we need this and daily you provide it we need your help we need your guidance we need your strength we need your wisdom and your power to keep you first and to love you most to be faithful to you we rely upon your spirit to make us more faithful every moment of every day in this process called life so God, I pray for that encouragement from the Spirit this week to go with us everywhere we go. I pray that it would season our words like salt to everyone that we speak to. I pray that it would help us with our, with our mind to make us more faithful in following after you. So thank you for that, that you offer that today to all of us every moment of every day. In Jesus' name, amen.